Hi, Black Hollywood Live fans. Today, we're talking about the straight out of Compton death claim and a Supreme Court justice takes issue with Colin Kaepernick. Stay tuned for that and more on Justice is Served. You are tuned into Black Hollywood Lives. Justice is served. Shaka wanted any excuse to hear this song again. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Justice is Served. My name is Chelsea Galicia. Thank you for joining me. I'm an attorney. I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Shaka Smith, for another episode of Justice is Served, where we bring you the latest in legal news from this week. Thanks again for joining us. And we finally have an update on this case where we haven't heard very much about this at all for a long time. This case seems to have been going on and on and on. Um, you'll remember that this stemmed from a, a, a wrongful a death that happened in January of 2015. I actually had to look it up because in my mind I had forgotten yeah, it was a while when ago, this yeah. happened ago. It was so long ago. So remember that when they were shooting straight out of Compton, there was this incident with Suge Knight coming to the set, being turned away. Uh, he ended up running over two guys. One of them died. That was Terry Carter. And his family has sued, yeah. uh, sued Suge Knight. And tried to sue... Ice Cube and Dr. Dre. Smart play in terms of going for the money, but uh, unfortunately um, they were dismissed from the suit. And so they were dismissed basically because the wrongful death suit alleged that they had hired um, ex-security um, ex-gang members for security. And that those gang members or security members now are the ones that incited Suge Knight um, to kind of run over Terry Carter and uh, this other gentleman. Yeah, but from, you know, uh, Dr. Dre's perspective and Ice Cube, it's like, how do you expect for them to have any ability to foresee that this situation would have gone down? Yeah. Generally, if you want to hold somebody liable for something, it's because they took an affirmative action in yeah. causing a, a harm, in this case, a death. They they clearly didn't. They yeah. weren't even they on were the scene. Too far away, too far removed from the action. Right. So you've got to look at the other option, which is, were they negligent in preventing something that they easily or should have known was going to happen? Yeah. And in this case, they said there's no way that you could reasonably see that this was going to happen and that this was the situation that we should have planned for exactly. and prevented. Yeah. So essentially, the person responsible, Suge Knight, is the one who's left on the hook here. Right. So, uh, I mean, huge, great news for Dre and Ice Cube yeah. that they are done with this case. Uh, for Suge, though, he's still sitting in jail waiting for yeah. both the criminal trial and the civil claim to go forward. And rightfully so, yeah. Uh, Suge will probably not go anywhere anytime soon. You'll remember he is being held without bail because it is believed that he is a high flight risk. Yeah. Uh, I don't know when... I don't know if it's even out there, the date of the trial beginning. There's probably still a lot of uh, pre-trial motions still going on. Yeah. And so I guess that's really uh, about it. On a somewhat um, related but not related, I saw briefly an article about what is going to happen to the Jerry Heller claim. No. Oh, yeah. Did you see that? We on the show were speculating right after... Um, Heller died yeah. about what was going to happen to his defamation claim yeah. because he claimed that the movie showed him in a fair, unfair light and wrongly sort of portrayed him as somebody who uh, pressured um, the guys to not, not have attorneys review the contract. Exactly. And so they did allow that claim to proceed. But but once again, it's a very high bar um, because he's got to show that it wasn't true or the estate now has to show that it wasn't true. Right. So that that's the issue now is what happens to this claim. I was guessing it was going to be 
tossed. Uh, Yemi made a good case, though, for that, the fact that it would likely remain. And um, the article I said said it's not very sure, but it looks like it will probably be dropped. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. I feel like it'll, it'll continue, but I think it'll be dismissed. Yeah. All right. And now, um, Shaka, just in case this whole election fever is getting to you and you do something crazy, don't try and use the Trump defense because it's unlikely <laughs> to work. Trump made me do it. Trump made me do it. <laughs> yeah. I can't. I mean, I guess I should believe that somebody tried to do this, but it yeah. was an actual defense that a defense attorney tried to put forth yeah. for his client. Yeah. I mean, I thought it made sense. So, um, we have uh, this client. He goes ahead and he, uh, Nicholas Tavella. Um, 20 years old, so he's convicted. Well, he's pled guilty now to felony ethnic intimidation, misdemeanor terroristic threats, and summary harassment. He essentially went up to an, um, another person and said, "Are you from the Middle East?" And they um, and harass this individual. Not just harass him, but like grabbed him by the throat, yeah. threatened to put a gun in his chest or a bullet in his chest. So yeah. this was highly, heavy harassment. Yeah, we yeah, could yeah, call it highly that. threatening assault and battery. Um, you know, but now it's because of the the heightened claim because of ethnic intimidation. The question or is whether he had malicious intent, which is necessary for that that felony. Um, and the lawyer felt, which is a high bar, you know, malicious intent is very difficult to show. Yeah. And so if you could show that perhaps the the environment is what caused it rather than the malicious intent to attack someone due to their um, ethnic heritage, then certainly that claim should fall. And so they went with that and they said, you know, the environment of Trump um, inciting hate and the Paris attacks and his love for country is what led to all of this. Please. And really not the malicious intent. Right. Yeah. So, so. basically they tried to replace his malicious intent with fear. Yeah. To say that this guy was afraid, the Paris attacks had recently happened, Trump is out there saying how dangerous things are and what terrible things are going to happen unless he is elected. Yeah. And that that fear drove this kid to these heinous actions rather than his own malicious intent. Well, I thought from the beginning it made no sense at all. Well, I, 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 think, it's, I think there's a point to be made, though, because I think... These things yeah, do the create... Po- the point is, don't yeah. elect Trump. Well, no, but I, yeah, well, <laughs> that too, and don't listen to him. Or, or really, I, I think the environment has been one that's created where someone could not have malicious intent, but do those things and perform those actions based on the environment that's created. So I, I didn't think it was completely far-fetched, uh, especially for this kid is 20 years old, but if the kid was 14 or 15 and he's hearing these things... Maybe that would be a valid, a valid uh, that's, defense. Uh, that's a good question, and that could actually make a difference in my mind about yeah. whether that defense should work on a juvenile. Yeah. Um, I still would hope in the end that it wouldn't, that we would all have to take responsibility for our own actions and that the in, whether it's malicious intent or malicious f- unreasonable fear, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think that somebody should still uh, be on the hook for a, a hate crime. But it does beg the question of whether, for a juvenile at least, the yeah. bar can be a little lowered. Bit lower. I mean, just the idea of giving the Trump defense any legal standing <laughs> just makes me want to vomit in my own mouth. But um, certainly it's been divisive and certainly it's had an effect on a lot of people. So I, I could see it in the, in the right context, you know. Uh, hopefully this, not. Yeah. But I this hopefully, one, of course, stood and he pled guilty to uh, it. So. Hopefully these kinds of incidents will go away when yeah. he hopefully goes into, <laughs> crawls into a cave and never to be re- seen again. Well, I, I don't think we're going to have that happen with Twitter. but <laughs> <laughs> So I think we'll have a lot to hear from Trump over the course of the next few years. Yeah, but I just hope that the, the kind of fear that he has incited yeah. and other people like him who incite that same fear... 
uh, it would be what? Well, I think maybe this is taking it too far. I would almost like Trump to be on the hook for that hate crime. <laughs> if this guy says Trump made me do it, maybe Trump should be on. Well, well I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch, but maybe that's wanting to include my personal feelings hey, into hey, the law. You know, certainly inciting a riot is certainly a crime. So that is true. That is definitely true, and it, I think he's gotten pretty close in Very some of his close, rally yeah, speeches. Yeah. Scarily close. All right, so speaking of scarily, uh, I was a little shaken up by this comment from a Supreme Court justice who I think is amazing. I would consider myself a fan. I think there is only one Supreme Court justice that even has fans, uh, as far as I know. I mean, I guess now there's all these people who are like Scalia fans because he, you know, died and they want to look for another (laughs) version of him. But Scalia in life never, I don't believe, had fans the same way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has fans. She is, I don't know, 80-something years old. Mm -hmm. She was a Clinton appointee, and she is pretty liberal, left-leaning. So me and a lot of other progressives really love her. We've dubbed her the notorious RBG. And we're really shocked when she made some comments about Colin Kaepernick. And, yeah, so basically she just disagreed with his... Um, she did an interview with Katie Couric, and she disagreed with um, his protesting of the national anthem. Uh, as we know, he's either sat down or taken a knee because he's protesting the oppression of black individuals, as, you know, seen through the lens of the police brutality. And she thought it was dumb and stupid and e- even arrogant. And she, you know, she didn't want to criminalize it, so at least we're, we're, we're uh, solid She's not pudding. saying to arrest him, for sure. Yeah, she's saying, obviously, it's very dangerous to arrest anyone for if they're not causing harm to others. So that's not what she's advocating. But her personal stance is it's dumb or stupid. But I think that is reflective of the fact that she doesn't have a connection to that sort of black experience. So maybe that she's been very progressive on... You know, women's issues yeah. and other things that she can relate to and she can, better and she's than been a race. progressive on minority issues as well, but she's not going to be able to be progressive in certain, especially for what he's doing. I think it almost requires an experiential type of background that he's doing it because he feels and he's known what discrimination is like and he's felt it in his own life. So what he's seen is a reflection of what he's already dealt with. You know? Yeah, and I, I think having that take on it makes you maybe take a firmer stand and it's not dumb or stupid to you, you know? Yeah. So in response to her comments, Colin Kaepernick said, you know, he was, uh, I guess maybe the word is, you know, disappointed in her comments, but that he cannot show more respect for a piece of cloth than he does for human lives. And I thought that was a pretty powerful statement to make and I can totally uh, support and understand that that comment. And I actually think that what he's doing is commendable. I mean... People get so upset when we talk about here people rioting mm-hmm. after these police brutality cases go down. Uh, they don't like the looting and the rioting and the uh, protests and all this stuff. People say, oh, you shouldn't protest, you should go get a job, that kind of thing. All right, well, now somebody with a, a job, a high-paying job, is using the platform that that job gives him and making a statement without being disruptive or... Uh, you know, out there being not even just disruptive, but I mean, the rioting, you know, that can be dangerous and harmful. But I think his message from the very beginning has been he's just protesting this type of treatment. And I think, because what she did was she almost likened it to flag burning. And I thought to myself, I don't really agree with flag burning, but I kind of agree, I pretty much agree with Colin Kaepernick what he's doing. And so why is that? But I thought, to me, flag burning is a different sort of animal. It, It is a 
there, there's almost an official break with an ideology of a country versus you know, a, a particular way people are being treated within the country. Because flag burning has with it this appearance that you want to destroy yeah. uh, the United States or what it represents. Yeah. And his kneeling doesn't do that. He, he's For me, he's almost committing an act of omission, you know, and I think that makes a difference in this case. Yeah, I've been really surprised by the number of, like, Facebook posts that I have seen about yeah. this. And a lot of people who say, well, I will teach my kids always to stand for the flag and... And and I kind of want to respond and say, I hope you teach your kids to take a stand when they see injustice occurring around our country, even if it doesn't affect them personally. Yeah, and I mean, and I, and because I, everybody that I have seen yeah. comment in that way is not a black person or even a minority. Yeah, yeah. But I also get it though because when he first did it, I was like, that's a little disrespectful of the country and the things that the country has given to you. There's opportunity here, and you're able to play in this, you know, football league and make you know a great amount of money, and certainly a lot of freedoms here as well. So I, I got the disrespect argument. For me personally, while I do agree with Colin Kaepernick, it's not something I would have personally done. That's not the way I would have protested. What would you do? I, maybe I'd be writing things that the public can see and writing essays. And, you know, I, I do that now, but with his platform, I'd be doing even more of it. Uh, so that's, that would be my form of protest. Personally, I think I would feel I was disrespecting the country if I were to do that. So that's why I personally don't protest in that way. But I agree with what he's doing, and I agree with his right to do it. Awesome. All right. One of the few stories that I think we're exactly <laughs> on the same page about. All right. Uh, and probably we're going to be on the same page about this um, this case here. So it is surprising that it's taken kind of this long for the Supreme Court to hear a death penalty case dealing with race. Yeah. And they just heard arguments on a pretty specific but potentially far-reaching case just last week. Mm -hmm. And this case has to do with a man who was convicted of murder. Nobody is trying to say he's innocent. No. He um, just shot an ex-girlfriend in front of her children, uh, along with the man who he suspected his girlfriend had cheated on him with, and also shot uh, his own stepsister yeah. who survived. Um, but anyway, the guilt or innocent part is not the issue here. Yeah. The part at issue is what happened in the penalty phase. It, yeah, so we, we get this guy, Walter Keanu, who, and so basically, as they're doing sentencing, they're considering whether or not, but choosing between life or death, you know, whether he goes to prison for life or the death penalty. Yeah, when we talk about he, it's Dwayne Buck. Dwayne Buck, He yeah. was convicted in Texas of murder. Yeah, and so he, so the, the jury's making that determination. And they're supposed to, you know, consider litany of factors, but chief among them, the dangerousness of the individual if he were to be let out. Or... Yeah, this is something that not all states have, but yeah. specifically Texas has this future dangerousness prong yeah. in their evaluation of whether somebody deserves a death penalty, which means that somebody's got to show that he is very likely to commit a dangerous act in the future, and only if that threshold is met can he be sentenced to death. Exactly. And so this expert, Walter Keanu, comes in and testifies. And that... not only just comes in yeah. and testifies, but doesn't he, he was called by the defense. Oh, yeah, yeah. And which is a very weird thing, but okay. And he comes in to testify that due to the fact that the defendant is black, he is more likely to commit violent crimes in the future. I mean, just straight up, 
I mean, yeah. there, this was yeah. no minced words yeah, here. This was yeah. not like our reading of it. I mean, straight up said the fact that he was black increased the probability that he would commit future acts of criminal violence. Exactly. And, you know, Dwayne said he was shocked that no one in the courtroom, no one gasped, no one objected, his lawyers didn't object, no one said anything, and it was business as usual. It was like this happens all the time in court. Yeah, exactly. And so what happens after this is, you know, he's sentenced to death. And you know, after several appeals, John, what is it, John Cornyn, the, AD, the attorney general at the time, he realizes that, yes, these cases were wrongly sentenced. So, you know, you can't have Kiana going up and saying, due to this one factor, they're going to be more dangerous. It's unconstitutional and obviously extremely prejudicial. And so as a result, he decides to rehear all these cases, about six cases. We get to the sixth case, Dwayne Buck. And the AD changes. Right. Yeah, and so one of the details of the story that I thought was really interesting is that it wasn't even in this case that that psychologist, Walter Quijano, was sort of called out on. It was yeah. another case oh, yeah. that somehow made it to the Supreme Court. So it's kind of, you know, just by luck that somebody found out, or the Supreme Court found out that Quijano was saying something like this. Yeah, because Dwayne said he was getting no traction, you know, for the he was trying assistance to of counsel. Yeah. appeal his case and, right, getting nowhere. So in a whole separate, another case, Walter Quijano is found to have been saying this. Yeah. It makes a difference in about six cases yeah, so because that's where he's uh, testified to this kind of conclusion and right in Cornine five says, we got to hear these cases again and so or at least for sentencing so they they do it for five and then we not get him you would get greg abbott the new attorney general who, who reneges on Cornine's promise to um these six guys and so now he's got to go through the process again and finally he's going to go up in front of the supreme court yeah. it, well, by it, the time that he he goes to try and appeal it the the reason that he's not allowed to appeal is because it's taken too long yeah so there's just all these crazy obstacles that have been put in his place that don't really make a lot of sense. And now the Supreme Court is taking up that issue. Is this a special enough circumstance where, despite blowing a statute of limitations on appeals and all that stuff, that this kind of prejudicial testimony should be enough to undo this uh, death penalty yeah. uh, Not the conviction itself, but the, uh, the sentence. Right. Yeah, and so... Uh and so we know the state contends that race was not the only factor as to why he got the death penalty. It was just one of these many factors, and that really the, the overriding factors were different elements. They that said had nothing to it do was the heinousness race. of the crime, his lack of remorse at the time, and you know, so a, a variety of things. But I think when you have an expert up there saying this person is more dangerous because he is black. And that increases the likelihood of committing future crimes. How did the jury not then say, well, that's the standard we're using. That's more dangerous. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So. so even though this, sometimes the Supreme Court will hear a case and very narrowly answer uh, the issue in, in that case. Yeah. And it seemed like when the Supreme Court justices were asking questions, one of them even asked out loud, like, is this really the case that we want to make? Uh, stand for something uh, of this nature because in this kind of case where somebody committed such a heinous act, yeah. the public almost doesn't want to see this kind of death penalty sentence overturned. Well, except for the fact that we do know that Dwayne Buck, the last 20 years that he's been in jail, has kind of been pious, you know. He, like he, an upstanding an death upstand, row inmate? An upstanding death row inmate. For There are many minor infractions you can get uh, um, being a death row inmate, from hanging artwork on your walls and just different minor infractions. He's received none in the last 20 years, and he's used that time to minister to other people on death row. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if they weigh that. 
Um, but it also is an opportunity for them to say, the, this court to say something like, any mechanism that uses race in the determination of the death penalty is hereby unconstitutional. Yeah. I mean, they can make a, a statement like that. I, I think they will. I think it'll be very specific to this case, and I think I think they will um, make that statement. It, they'll, they'll make the statement, and then I wonder if the language will be used so that it will lend itself to other cases than being able to cite this one or whether the language will be so narrowly tailored to this case that other cases can't use it. Well, I mean, what, what he did is unconstitutional. You cannot use race as a factor for sentencing. It's just not maybe explicitly written in a Supreme Court opinion. Yeah. And so I, I think they will certainly make that a blanket. Because know, then what can statement. happen is if it's said, you know, they'll have to say what we think they're going to say. And it looks like, based on the questions that some of the justices were asking, that they are going to side with Buck. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, my fave, but who just kind of disappointed me, as I mentioned mm-hmm. a couple stories ago, said, what competent counsel would put that evidence before a jury? Yeah. So she knows that something's up. And even Samuel Alito, who is a George Bush appointee, so a little more conservative, said, what occurred at the penalty phase of this trial is indefensible. He described the testimony as bizarre. So that lets us know that they're leaning, at least at this point, yeah, to I, him. Yeah, I'm certain they other than other facts to come out, I'm pretty sure they've made up their minds. It's pretty reprehensible what took place. Right. So if they say something like any, uh, what I'm hoping that they're going to say is that any, um, I don't know if the word is practice or any, I'm just going to use the word because I can't think of a better one right now, but any practice that uses race or any um, scale where race is um, given more weight um, in practice. So, for example, there are some, um, like, ineffective uh, counsel for indigenous, you know, uh, indigent people. So can't can't (laughs) afford their own private attorneys. All right, so what we see with those is that very often those people are more likely to face the death penalty than somebody who's convicted but has their own private attorney. So what I would like to see is they say that any time that there is a difference, um, like historically, that uh, the death penalty is more often given with if you are, you know, indigent or if you are of certain race, that the death penalty... uh, is likely unconstitutional. They may not use this case to declare it unconstitutional, but they can slowly chip away at the number of times that we see um, uh, race or, or not just race, but my, uh, minority. And yeah. usually it's probably going to be something associated with money. Oh, yeah, any suspect class or... Yeah, or so an even I don't think they're going to go that broad on this case. I don't think they go that broad they, at all. They, I don't think they they want to, but I, I I feel that there's going to be something that is slowly going to chip away at the death penalty, and that in about ten years it will be severely limited, if not deemed uh, unconstitutional. My, I don't see it going that far. I do think it'll, it'll basically say race cannot be used as. A, a predominant factor in sentencing, unless for some reason race is at issue in the case. You know, maybe you're a KKK member, at which point it might there might be some consideration there. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think it's going to be anything broader than because this is a really explicit, yeah, so prejudicial I think thing. That's but why I think it's really easy for the, for all the members of the Supreme Court to come to say agree. that this is just this particular but case. But then is there egregious. are other things that are not 
so racist overtly, yeah. but they're racist when you look at the numbers. Like, you look at the number of oh, cases, yeah. and you just look at sort of behind the scenes of what goes on when a certain statute is applied. Well, I think this, I think the language they're going to use about race and sentencing is going to be kind of a nice base so that going forward, when we do identify why black men are overwhelmingly sentenced uh, to different, to harsher sentences, yeah. that, that might be a way to jump off to another case that might broaden um, those kind of those kind of sentences in that that whole arena because as we we watched thirteenth documentary did yeah. a little special on uh, Sunday yeah please uh, go tune into that that was a uh, Black Hollywood Live and Popcorn Talk their sister networks here at After Buzz and we just did on Sunday night a special on that documentary that Ava DuVernay uh, just made and went out on Netflix on Friday evening so yeah. be sure to check out the movie and our special on it exactly and so and we all know from watching that that our eyes were opened even more so to the disparity in sentencing laws and, and how those those laws have really broken up black communities. And so I, I think this is just a particular case where it was spelled out and it was just as egregious as possibly could be. Yeah. But I think this kind of sentiment happens and the jury is always kind of made to believe because he's black he's more dangerous. So um, it was almost a good thing that this guy was so explicit and that we're able to identify it now and hopefully have a Supreme Court decision that will give us a, a good platform for fighting it in the future. Yeah, I hope so. All right, so this is a really interesting uh, case here. I know that I, if I hear a state cr- uh, criminologist testify that a drug or DNA or something is a match, then I'm very likely to believe that. Oh, 100%. We, we watch CSI, so we know that they're, like, spot on, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and we've heard of, you know, some people have made uh, mistakes, and there's been even some... Uh, systematic mistakes and errors that happen, okay, fine. But still, overall, I would give it like 90% weight. Yeah, because normally you figure something that's happening is easily identifiable, there's a problem and we can fix it, but here, not so much. Yeah, so, I mean, this just shocked my conscience when I saw that there was a, a crime lab chemist from Massachusetts. Her name is Annie Dukin, and she pled guilty to obstruction of justice and perjury and tampering with evidence because she literally fudged test results. Yeah, she misanalyzed. Uh, she lost some, some, some she didn't even perform, and then she ended up just kind of writing reports as if they were fine, and she did these tests. And testifying as an expert witness yeah. for the state, which... You know, I'm not sure if that was just straight part of her job or if she additionally got paid an expert witness fee because those can be incredibly lucrative. Yeah, and this was between... So she stops... She starts in 03 and stops in 2012. She gets her last case in 2011. So for all these years... She's just kind of fudging data, 24,000 convictions she's involved in. Yeah, so now the question is, you know, so this happened a while ago. Um, She's actually done her her prison time. It was three to five years, and she was paroled earlier this year in April of 2016. So the story is, you know, crazy enough. Now the question is, what do you do with all these 24,000 cases? Yeah, and so... Some people want them to just be summarily dismissed. Just I kind of want that one. Yeah, but it's 24,000 cases. And, you know, the, um, defend, uh, the public defendant is saying, look, that might be the best route. Because if everyone, if we're able to hear all these cases, even if we increased our, our uh, force by a third and got 500 more attorneys, state-appointed attorneys, it would take us to, what, 2064 to hear all these cases. That's insane. So you, you shouldn't be sitting in jail or, you know, your time has already passed in jail while you know, these cases are heard. Yeah, so I I don't um, 
I don't agree with this. Uh, let's let's retry each one individually. It's a crazy waste of resources. I mean, I guess this is the state of Massachusetts, so my tax dollars aren't paying for it. But I yeah. can't imagine that the taxpayers of Massachusetts put up the expense to have these cases tried mm-hmm. and then want to redo all of them all over again. Yeah. And, and not to mention, well, so 62% of the cases were for simple possession. So most of those people pled out and are... Gone, probably already out in the street, you know. Just but the problem is, even for them, even they if have they a record put, now. Exactly. And so, so those records should be vacated for sure because, you know, if we're not dealing with people that are violent offenders, that's my big issue. And they, and they need, I think they need to call into, you know, look at her cases and say, look, these are the violent offenders. Here we'll look individually, but for these guys, they need to be let go. Yeah. 25% were for distribution. And that means those guys receive mandatory minimums. And again, 13th documentary, we know what mandatory minimums really mean. So, so I'm on the side of toss them out. Yeah, I, I, I toss them out with without prejudice, so that the prosecution can then go after its strongest cases, and you know continue from there. Wow, look how much we're agreeing today. <laughs> we What's a, happening? We had a good spate of cases. E- either yeah. I'm going more central, or you're becoming more progressive. <laughs> well, hey, that, that documentary certainly might have done it, right? All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. So, I, wow. I guess because we agreed so much, we got through it so quickly. <laughs> nice. We're gonna have to find more cases where there's more contention for next time. Uh, so that brings us to to the end. So yeah. thanks so much for joining us. You can uh, tweet at me, Chelsea Galicia. Yeah, you can find me, Shaka Strong, on Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, any social media platform. Yes, and don't forget to comment, like, and join us again next week for another episode of Justice is Served. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Christie, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us. Info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live. Scipio, Instagram me, at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.